Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Uh, Kieran, I'll just let you know I've had a bit of a chest infection, so if I sound even huskier and sexier than usual, not quite. Talking of sexy, Kieran, we both... This, I mean, we, there can't have been a time when we recorded a pod off the back of our team scoring 10 goals between them, surely? And I suspect there never will be again, so, so let's make the most of it. Yes, uh, although, of course, the conspiracy theories uh, kicked in yesterday, Kieran, because um, we got back to the Porsons... Uh, after the game, obviously in a very happy mood, discussing the fact that even if Brighton Wolves was nil-nil, the BBC would still put that first on match of the day because they love Brighton so much because most of them live down there. And of course, as each Brighton goal went in, we go, oh, that's it. They won't even show the other two games, will they? They'll just, it'll just be Brighton on match of the day with everyone just going, how wonderful Brighton are. Uh, but what, I mean, fair play to what a performance from Brighton yesterday. Again, I do have to ask you uh, something, Kieran, about the Palace game yesterday. Because much as we were very, very good on the pitch and much as we had the best chant of the season, without a doubt, when Kurt Zuma limped off and 20,000 Palace fans were chanting, that's how your cat felt. (laughs) Uh, There there was abject chaos beforehand, Kieran. The electronic turnstiles went down on three sides of the ground. Luckily, where we were, because we've got our magic entrance, we were actually in as they announced a delay, and you could see how empty the rest of the ground was. And you could tell BT Sport weren't going to be happy about kicking off in front of an empty ground. Somebody did the sensible thing. The club are denying this happened, but somebody clearly opened the gates to let people in. But I really felt for young fans going to their first game, for overseas fans going to their first game, because it was dangerous out there, Kieran. It was was appalling. But I do wonder whether BT Sport will get some kind of compensation for the 15-minute uh, delay in kickoff, or whether indeed it was them that asked for it? Um, no, I, the the delay to the kickoff has almost certainly come on behalf of the safety officer, right. because right. the last thing you want is for fans to start rushing the turnstiles, because, it, because if there has been a delay, you, you don't want to crush. Um, now, we have seen this happen before sometimes when there's been issues due to transport. Uh, we've had floodlight failures and so on. So in terms of the contract with the broadcasters, unless the match is is cancelled, um, there, there wouldn't be a compensation because you've got to have a degree of flexibility. As far as BT are concerned, their show starts at midday or 11.30, whenever it's going to be, and they will simply you know, effectively accelerate some of the comments from the pundits or the pre-match interviews and, and have less at the end of the show before they move on to the next show. So I think it's it's highly unlikely. Uh, the, the, the Let's face it, the broadcasters are more than happy to change kickoff times to suit themselves and disadvantage fans. So, so and we get no compensation. You know, and that's, that's an issue that we've discussed before. Um, so therefore, uh, it's highly unlikely they'd get any recompense themselves. I mean, they, they did get recompense uh, during COVID when matches were off for three months. And, and, and that's still rippling through. I think next season will be the final season when, when the agreement between the Premier League and the broadcasters uh, phases out. Uh, to be honest, Kim, there would have been no room to rush the turnstiles. It was so... Uh, painfully crushed at some areas. I, I did genuinely feel sorry for, for BT Sport because Joe Cole and Peter Crouch are good pundits, but their improvisation skills aren't the best. So just saying, Joe, Peter, you've got to improvise for 15 minutes. Just We'll throw you a subject. You're on the Titanic. Off you go. Um, <laughs> we, we have some very interesting questions today, Kieran. Uh, one splendidly sarcastic one as well, <laughs> which yes. I really like. Um 
but we do have a couple of news stories. Um, the, the first of which, Kieran, is fascinating me because we've talked of our admiration for German football for quite some time, and now there's a development at one club, which I, I think is uh, odd but splendid. Yes, this is uh, Fortuna Dusseldorf, who are in Bundesliga Division 2. And they are planning to have free tickets for matches for fans to attend. Uh, I think it's part of the culture that uh, we we noticed this during lockdown, that fans attending football matches converts a piece of architecture into a living, breathing organism. And that enhances the product as far as the, the viewers are concerned. You know, the size, the cries, the, the shrieks, the the, the, the the tension that is evident, especially towards the end of matches. And, and, the, and that tension tends to be more to do with relegation matches than, than clubs trying to win things. Um, so what Fortuna Dusseldorf have done, they, they've managed to get some sponsors who are willing to pay uh, its, its 45 million euro for, for a five-year deal. Mm. And effectively, the sponsors pay for the tickets. Now, 20% of that money is going to youth development and the women's team. So it's, it's a progressive approach. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I, I, I love German fan culture. I love the way that German fans are, are organized and, and, and that they do, uh, they do very much represent and they hold the Bundesliga to, to account in a way that perhaps we, we don't do uh, as, as much as we could do. And, and you know, the, the, the FSA do a great job, but um, you know, German, German culture is, is very, very embedded in, in part of mm. the way that the game operates there. Now, one thing to note about Fortuna Dusseldorf is that they're they're averaging thirty thousand in in the second division of the Bundesliga, which is absolutely splendid. But the capacity of the ground is fifty five thousand. So here you look at it from a sort of a commercial point of view. If you can turn that thirty thousand into fifty thousand, then you've got more people buying merchandise. You've got more people paying for catering. You've got more people, um, you know, in, in hospitality and so on. So so that that can actually help the club in terms of generating extra money. And when we look at English football, and there's, I think there's a report in The Guardian or one of the other papers uh, in the last day or two, uh, sorry, it was The Athletic, that attendances are at record levels. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if we look at the very first season of the Premier League, um, the average attendance was 22,000. This season, it's going to be 40, which, which is incredible. Yeah. And a lot of people, and I, I can't be honest, I, I was, I, I, my reservations as well. Thought with you know with inflation running at double digit levels, season ticket prices going up, um, the general constraints put on on fans and others, um, would there be a negative impact on on people attending matches? And that doesn't appear to be the case. And this is because and you know, it's one thing we've said on a regular basis. Football is the most important of the unimportant things in life. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, when you are making decisions, it's, yeah, we'll go to the match. Perhaps we won't go out for a meal. Perhaps I'll, I'll, it'll be, I'll have two pints afterwards instead of three and so on. Um, because such is the bond between football clubs and fans. And that's also a part, partly due to what we've seen post-COVID is that you realise just how much you missed what I would call proper football, attending a match. See, you, as you've always said, it's it's the same blokes in the same pub at the same table talking the same bollocks. But actually, it's fantastic, uh, and it's part of that that experience. And I think we we make huge sacrifices in order to achieve that. So, what we've seen uh, from Dusseldorf, and they they're doing it for three home games next season. They want to extend it to to all matches. Um, I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Would it work here? I don't think so, because 99% of tickets are already sold. Um, and then, and I hate to say it, not everybody's would do this in a in a in a in a proper manner, yeah. i.e., touts would have an absolute field day. They they would they'd get a load of yeah. <clears throat> stooges to apply for tickets, and then they'd be selling to tourists on the day at even more inflated prices. Yeah. Um Aston Villa and West Ham, Kieran, are having uh, very different seasons, despite their mm. similar kit. Uh, it's probably one of the worst links I've ever come up with at short notice <laughs> since we started the pod. Um, but they're both annoying their fans in the same way this week. 
Yes. Um, nearly every club has announced season ticket prices for 23-24. Some of them have gone up by a small amount. Some of them have gone up by double-digit amounts. Um, and as fans, you know, again, we, we will make all efforts that we can. I appreciate that some can't afford. You know, that, that there is... Uh, there, there are extra demands or there are increasing uh, fiscal demands upon us. But what Villa and West Ham have done, and, and I think this is quite insidious. Kevin, you and I, we're, we're not as young as we used to be. No. Um, no, nobody is, Kieran, to be honest. That, that, is, that is a fair point. That is a fair point. Um, and I, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, some of the benefits of being slightly older, such as my, my senior person's rail card. Mm-hmm. Which, which when you, which when you commute from Brighton to Liverpool is is absolutely fantastic. Uh, when you when, um, when you go to as many gigs as as you do for an older chap, it's also very helpful. That's right. That is. Yeah, you, you talk um, about being not as young as we used to be, but you're still going to see the Sisters of Mercy, Kieran. This is, and I'm going to see um, the Dead Kennedys in a couple of weeks as well, which I'm really looking forward to, and and I can imagine. Uh, I will be in amongst the sixty-year-old blokes there, and, and I think the local A and E might have to take a few uh, yeah. <laughs> take a few people in for for damaged knees whilst pogoing. Oh, well, there, there'll be some defibrillators in that gig, surely, won't there? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm amazed so. to hear the dead Kennedys are still alive for very many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but but what Villa and West Ham have done is they've increased the age from which you can get discounted tickets for seniors from 65 to 66. Um, now, the clubs justify this on the grounds that the um, the age at which you can claim a pension right. is increasing from 65 to 66. And then, of course, it's going to increase from 66 to 67. Um, but uh, I, I think that's just <laughs> disgusting. I think it's absolutely appalling. You know, first of all, um, you know, whether you're 65 or 66 – You've put in a shift. Your chances are you've been supporting Villa or West yeah. Ham for for fifty or more years. So you're entitled, in my view, to have you know, some some benefits. Um, also, many people take early retirement. Now, you know, it, it's not a case of if somebody takes early retirement, they they can phone up the club and say, "Look, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've, I've had enough. I can't can't yeah. I'm, I'm retiring at sixty two. Can I therefore have an OAP ticket?" So if they're not going to do it for people that take early retirement, why are they doing it um, for people who are yeah, looking forward to looking forward to retirement? And oh, I'll, get, I'll get a cheaper ticket at, you know, to see the team that I've supported all my life. And and the the extra amount of money, as far as the clubs are concerned, yeah, we are talking about businesses which are earning the thick end of two hundred million pounds a year. Uh, you know, Villa have got. A, very good chance, especially the way they're you know, playing magnificent football. They've got a very good chance of playing in Europe. And it's this sort of nickel and dime yeah. uh, extraction of a few extra quid from people who have been with Villa and West Ham through thick and thin. Um, you know, both of those clubs have had seasons in in the lower yeah. divisions, never stopped the fan base, never stopped the loyalty. Um, I, I just think it's... A bit tawdry. There is one way around this, Kieran, and that is what you do is you put 67 on the back of your shirt because <laughs> I believe legally that's how the club asks you to prove your age. Uh, you, you just go with the number you put on the back. I just, it's like you say, for the amount of money that's saved by doing this, Kieran, it just mm-hmm. infuriates me. And yes, the, the, the clubs will say, well, it's an aging population now, people live longer, but. Just sod off is the answer to that, and, and also, yes. also, you imagine French clubs trying this? It'd be, it'd be fantastic. Just that's the way to stop these things happening. It's just wrong for the, it's, and it, for the, neg- the the negative PR they get from the off the back of it. Yes. And again, you know, Villa are having a great season, a really good season. They're playing some great football. One of my closest mates is a Villa fan, and it's just like it's just taken a little bit of the gloss off it for him because you don't mm. want your club. Mm to be the, the club that does these things. But anyway, Kieran, questions. The, the first one isn't on the script. Um, and, the, and the reason why is going to infuriate one of our later question answer, askers. Um, it was very sarcastic about the waiting list. Um, and let me tell you, it's 50-50 whether I actually answered that, asked that question in the first one. I might still not ask it just to annoy him. Um, but I bumped into a chap. Uh, it turns out that is the way of one way to jump in the curious to bump mm. into me. Uh his name's John Appleby, 
and he's a he's, he's such a he's a very sad Hartlepool fan basically uh, <clears throat> Hartlepool are a club uh, that I've always had a soft spot for because of the Brian Clough connection one of my absolute ideals but John just said is there any way of giving an indication perhaps not specific numbers but what effect Hartlepool's relegation will have on the, the club and the town right as far as the club is concerned, um, you get revenue from three sources. Match day will go down perhaps a wee bit, but the away the away support in the national league is pretty fantastic. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't think they'll be hit significantly by that. In terms of commercial, I, I think um, the front of shirt deal you'll be struggling to match the price um, in in League Two because. You, you do get a little bit more exposure as far as television is concerned if you are um, in the EFL. The big issue for me is is going to be broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you as, as Hartlepool, they, they get around about 500 grand a year um, from the EFL as part of the TV deal. That will fall in half. They get two years of parachute payments on half money. But what they will lose out on is what we refer to as solidarity payments. And these are payments which come from the Premier League. Um, and they, they're they probably worth you know, the thick end of a million. Um, so, so they're going to go. So, so the club will be looking at you know, a, a million pound reduction potentially in overall revenues, um, which for a club which is operating on a, yeah, pretty tight budget uh, will, will will be negative. I, I believe that the uh, the chairman, uh, the owner, is is looking to now sell the club, um, and, and I think yeah, you know, that that makes sense. The relationship hasn't been good in in recent mm. years. Um, Jeff Stelling's retiring from uh, doing doing soccer Saturday, so perhaps perhaps he could uh, get get it more involved. You know, he's, he's been a fantastic ambassador for the club over the years. Um, in respect of the impact on the town, it it will be marginal, but it still will be there. You and I, we know of Hartlepool because of Hartlepool United Football yeah. Club, and there are towns in the northeast which I'm not familiar with. Um, uh, and again, I've I've got a soft spot there because the Baroness and I had our first date there, which. <laughs> Uh, this, I've seen the plaque, Kieran. I've seen the I've seen the plaque. Yeah. Yes, so just outside, just outside um, a chip shop, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I I didn't realise that her ex husband was uh, somebody who worked at Manchester United, and one of the previous matches she'd been to was the Champions League final. So I, 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 do you like football? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you fancy coming to Hartlepool? Uh, okay, and, and then, Kieran, then we lost. Yeah, I'm sorry, Kieran. I, I'm going to put it to you that even if you did know her ex-husband had taken her to the Champions League, you still would have suggested Hartlepool for the first date, Kieran. And you must, <laughs> you must have known she was a keeper that she stayed till full time. I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we, we lost, and I didn't speak all the way home because I was sulking. So, <laughs> so how that how that second date ever took place is beyond me. <laughs> but uh, but it did, it did. We'll celebrate that. Yeah. Um, but yes, there there will be in terms of the, the knowledge of Hartlepool. Well, that's, that's a walking out the room now. Um, that's fiddly's gone to cross you up. That's what that is. That's right. Yeah, snitch. Um, so th- there will be a, I think a a small impact. Uh, you know, a few fewer fans. That has an impact upon the hospitality industry. My concern is if Hartlepool don't return to the EFL for a period of five to ten years, then things yeah. could have a, a slightly greater impact because, rightly or wrongly, the 92 gives you a bit of identity um, with not not in your own town, but with you know, kids as they're growing up. You, know, you, you and I, we, we both remember uh, when, when you used to go and get those little things from shoot at the start of the season yeah. and you, you put in your little tabs. Well, we knew the names of all 92 clubs. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, you, you, you'd say, well, where is Hartlepool? Where is, where is Wickham? And so on. Um, and I think that could, that could be lost, which, which is a shame. Uh, but I think the, the impact upon the football club itself will be far more significant than, than probably on the, the surrounding areas. <clears throat> would, wouldn't have had Wickham in those days, Kieran. For, for younger listeners, uh, Shoot Football Magazine of Blessed Memory 
at the start of the season, you used to have cardboard league tables that you put little tabs in to monitor your team's progress throughout the season. And I defy anyone to tell me that they actually lasted the whole season. <laughs> <clears throat> like most kids, I'd get about three weeks in and just go, what am I doing? There's papers for this sort of thing. I'll just go and get the standard. Um, questions, Kieran. We've got some cracking questions. The first two are about Man United, but they couldn't be more different in scale. The first one's a very macro yeah. level, and the second one is as micro a question as I think we've ever been asked. Um, but the first one comes from Gaz Sumnall. And Gaz says, with the speculation surrounding Manchester United's ownership, would it actually be seen as a good investment? If a business were to be purchased in another sector for a similar price, would you expect similar dividends? And finally, if a new owner does come in, would they need to invest to help United become successful again? Or could they buy the club, clear the debt, then use the revenue generated by that to invest and still provide dividends to a potential owner? And before you answer that, Kim, I suppose you should keep us up to date with what's actually happening with the, the ownership speculation. Yes, as far as we're aware, there was a third round of bids which expired at 10pm on Friday night. Um, that's Friday the 28th, 29th. Yeah. Um, now, depending upon which paper you read, uh, because there are some very selective leakages taking place, uh, either Sir Jim Ratcliffe is in the box seat because he's prepared to let the Glazers stay and offer them 20, let them own 20% of the club, presumably a place on the board, or Sheikh Jazim is in the strong place because he's willing to buy all of the shares. So it, it is a... Uh, uh, it, it is a tricky one, um, but it looks as if the the final bidding price is going to be somewhere in the region of five billion pounds. Um, now the Glazers want six, um, and I, I don't think they'll get it. But in respect of Gaz's question, is it a good investment? Well, it's been a it's been a great investment from the Glazers' point of view. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they put next to nothing in, and they're, they're going to walk away with, with billions. But if I set that aside, because I, I honestly feel that the prices which are being quoted are um, trophy asset prices. They, they are not borne out through any analysis of, of the business itself. Over the, the 17 years of the great Glazers' ownership, Manchester United has a collective pre-tax loss of three hundred million pounds. So, if you've not managed to break even over over seventeen years, and you, you're you're getting a huge amount for the business, uh, to me it indicates that the people buying it either know something about the club which the Glazers haven't realised, and and there's there's lots of talk about if Manchester United can. Uh, exploit the metaverse and new technologies. They 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 could potentially uh, become a very lucrative uh, cash generating business, and, and they have been lucrative. But I think we could increase the numbers, or they're being mugged off. Um, <laughs> and and, you know, and, and one of those two, we we will sit back in, you know in ten years time, and, and and we'll be able to make that judgment. If you take a look at the share price of Manchester United um, between when it was listed in twenty twelve. And before uh, the announcement of the club going up for sale took place, the share price had actually decreased over 10 years. And I think that's sort of a, a broader indication as to how the the broader investment markets view the club. It's, it's good at generating revenue. It's pretty rubbish at making decisions. And um, its cost control is poor because for all the criticism that's levelled at the Glazers, they had the highest wage bill in the Premier League, so therefore you'd expect it to um, be able to go and sign some of the best players, which which it has done. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's it's got the highest net spend um, over the course of the last decade as well since since the club was listed. So going onto the stock market didn't prevent the club from spending it money, spending money. Um, I think what you've got to look at is quality versus quantity of spend, and yeah. You know, this isn't a football show, as we know, but if I was to ask, and I'm going on a Manchester United show on Tuesday, and they'll, they'll be asking me about the money, and, and what I would always say to them, name me half a dozen players that you've signed in the last 10 years who you thought were actual good value for money. Yeah. And they go, well, Bruno Fernandes, yeah. 
and then they're going, well, yeah, okay. So, um, you know, diff- different clubs have got different approaches. And I think this is where Manchester United's perhaps old school approach to player recruitment hasn't necessarily been particularly successful. Um, you know, and, and I'm not picking up my club here, but sort of Brighton's approach, which appears to be uh, a bit like the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, in that, in that they, they go to South America with a big butterfly net, and, and anybody see that they can see doing ten keepy uppies in, in Paraguay or Ecuador, they grab them and sort of and then smuggle them to Brighton, stick them in the youth team for six months, and, and then they're in the Premier League, and people are going, where, where do they come from? So, so I think. That's been the issue at, at Old Trafford. For all of the faults of the Glazers, the budget has been competitive. Um, it's just not been spent well. So I think the the issue, as far as the new owners are concerned, is dealing with issues such as infrastructure, dealing with making better decisions, and then there's no reason why Manchester United cannot be winning trophies again. Yeah, the micro question, Kieran, comes from Richard. Now, as you know, I don't approve normally of people who just send in uh, one name, but as it turns out, Richard may be sitting on a gold mine, so I'm I'm content for Richard just to stay as Richard. And Richard says, back in 2004-ish, before the Glazers purchased the controlling stake in Manchester United, I was gifted one ten-pence share in the club for my birthday by my now very ex-girlfriend. Um, <laughs> no disrespect, Richard, but when the uh, present isn't worth as much as the envelope it comes in, uh, I don't think the relationship had long to last in the first place. In fact, in fact, the stamp, the stamp, the envelope, and the card probably four or five times as much as the actual present. But uh, I hope you're happy now. Um, sorry, that sounded aggressive, didn't it? Um, when the buyout happened, says Richard, I received multiple letters, all of which would have had stamps worth much more than that present. Uh, I received multiple letters offering me £3 for my nominal value 10 pence share. I never sold my share because, to quote Sir Alex, I wouldn't sell them a virus. Many years later, though, I've often wondered what would have happened to that share and what can I do with it? Was it lost in some big restructure? Do I still own a small piece of Man United deep within their accounts? I still have the paperwork buried away somewhere in my mum's loft. <laughs> right. Um, well, Richard, yeah, it's I've not got very good news for you. When oh, the really? Glazers uh, when the Glazers bid for Manchester United, you're absolutely right. They did bid three pounds a share. Um, and they they had to get through a threshold of 97.5% approval. So once they get to that, they are then allowed to do something which is referred to as a squeeze out, which is it's the equivalent um, from a sort of a property point of view of a compulsory purchase order. So um, they they would have written to him, they would have said, look, we're going to buy your share, whether you like it or not. And Ah, and effectively, from a corporate point of view, the share is nominally transferred uh, to another company um, by by Manchester United, and Richard would therefore effectively lose his voting rights with respect to that share. Um, I guess in theory, he's possibly owed three pounds by the Glazer family, um, <laughs> but it, it would it would be that particular price. It won't be index linked. Um, they probably can afford it if they sell the, the club for to six five five or six billion. Um, but as far as your rights are concerned, Richard, I think the best thing you can do is to to get the certificate and stick it on a wall, um, and and have memories of a of of, of uh, more innocent times in the world of football and finance. I feel really sorry for Richard. I hope Richard's not freelance because if he's anything like me, every now and again when he's in one of those periods of of cash flow, people not paying, he would have thought, "I've still got that share." I could I could sell that. That'll be probably five hundred quid. Sorry about the bad news, Richard. Sorry about the girlfriend. Uh, I'm sure you'll have settled down by now. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on the Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, 
or you're an aspiring musician, manager, or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Kevin Kissane has our next question, Kieran. And Kevin says, uh, a hypothetical question for you, and one I'll admit I've done little to no research beforehand. Um, that's fine, Kevin, because that's, <laughs> that's how I go about answering some of them. <laughs> Uh, Kevin says, with the upcoming expiry of the original Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse copyrights, and given that copyright doesn't last forever, could this have an impact on football clubs at any stage, given that many are past or approaching their own centenaries? It's quite an interesting question, Kieran, in terms of copyright on badges and mottos, slogans, that sort of thing, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, this is more of a legal question. So um, I'm indebted to to Tom, uh, one of our legal friends, who who very kindly didn't mind me contacting him at stupid o'clock on a Sunday morning. Say, <laughs> oh, Tom, <laughs> because you know what I'm like. I'm like bloody Tigger in the morning. Say, I, I start preparing this this oh, my, my notes at about five or six o'clock in the morning. Um, but uh, t- Tom was very patient with me. And um, this is all to do with the difference between copyright and trademarks so as as an artist um you are entitled in the uk to copyright of your materials 70 years post death so if if you have something which you have copyrighted so for example you you're the author of a book kevin you you have the, effectively the royalties to that or your family your, your your descendants have the royalties to that for, for up to 70 years after your death. Um, but in the US, it's 100 years. So that's why there's this issue with Steamboat Willie. Right. And this is why the Disney Corporation are starting to get a bit twitchy because you know, we are now reaching the centenary of the first Mickey Mouse films and so on. What is slightly different, however, is that a club crest and a badge um, comes under the, the, the area of trademark rights now trademarks um you will you get a trademark and you can keep that for a period of 10 years but you can renew it as often as you wish so provided the football club renews its trademark it can effectively have manchester united football club crystal palace football club whatever it's going to be the the, the eagle the, the you know the, the, the ship canal references and so on uh, in manchester united's badge um, for as as long as they do the paperwork so um there is no there's no problem unless the the club secretary forgets to renew the trademark when it's due for renewal there must have been innocent times back in 1923 24 Kieran, because you wouldn't call a cartoon steamboat willy now would you it's, yeah, no. <laughs> you're really setting up different expectations now. I've just got a copy of Steamboat Willie. All right. I'll be staying in tonight then. Um, our next question comes from <laughs> Oran Martin. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Oran, because uh, it's an Irish name and I'll be in trouble if I didn't. Uh, Oran says, I have a question for you in relation to amortisation of transfer fees. Now Kieran's happy. More so, says Oran, in relation to add-ons. Now, I understand how basic amortisation works from your frequent descriptions of it. However, I'm unsure how add-ons in transfers are amortised. So are they charged from the season after certain criteria have been met? For example, if there's an appearance-based add-on for the transfer and this is activated, for the following seasons of the player's contract, does that fee get amortised over these years along with the original transfer fee? Right. Um, This is an intriguing one. Um, In my view what you have to look at would be the triggering event. Now, the triggering event could be a number of appearances. It could be that the club qualifies for the Champions League. It could be that the player gets international caps and so on. And what will happen is that if there is a triggering event, then all of the additional fee will be recognised in the year in in which it takes place. So I don't think it will necessarily be amortised. So so let's say say that... that, I'm not trying to panic you here, Kevin. Let's say that you sell Elise or Eze to Chelsea or Arsenal. And one of the conditions is, is that if Chelsea or Arsenal qualify for the uh, the Champions League, Palace get an extra 5 million. As far as Chelsea or Arsenal is concerned, they would have to put that 
cost through in the year in which it takes place rather than amortizing right. um you when you are amortizing you are amortizing the player's um registration certificate over the life of of the the contract that the player has signed any any add-ons in my view would have to be recognized immediately must be really annoying for anyone who sold a player to Chelsea last year expecting a big fallout with the Champions League yes. qualification thing and going, what? That's what? Uh, Stephen Dring has our next question. Has how our next question? Stephen Dring has our next question. <coughs> if, if he's, yeah, no, I'm going to read it out, even though he gets all sarcastic on our ass at the end. Uh, following Morgan Gibb-White's successful loan spell at Sheffield United last season, Wolves accepted a £42 million fee for him from Nottingham Forest. Does Kieran know of any deals when the club loaning the player for the season before could negotiate a percentage of any uplift in value of the player should the player be subsequently sold? We already see loan fees charged the other way by the parent club. Transfer marked had his value at £6.6 million when he went to Sheffield United on loan at the start of the 21-22 season. So there's no doubt that it was a huge increase in his value while he was there. Uh, so up to now, it's been an interesting question. Uh, Stephen then adds, uh, depending on how long the waiting list of questions now is, for anyone unsure, Morgan Gibbs-White was a footballer. And footballer was, football was a popular sport across the globe in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, admirable sarcasm notwithstanding, Kieran. Um, and I'm not encouraging anybody else to use sarcasm to get their question read out. Uh, but it's it's <laughs> it's a really interesting question because there's no doubt. I mean, that's a, a huge uplift in his value while he was at Sheffield United. Could Sheffield United claim that was down to them? From a legal point of view, from a contractual point of view, no. Right. And, and I know Leeds fans have tried to do the same in, in with regards to yeah. Ben White. Um, they, they said you know, the, the season he had in the championship, nobody had heard of him beforehand. Well, we had, to be fair, at Brighton. Um, but uh, that's it, it's effectively it, it's it's a win win deal from the point of view of the the host club, the parent club. They get somebody else to assist in the development of their player. That player gets exposure, and if if you then want to cash in. Then, then it's then it's happy days. Um, so, so the but but then the club that's using the player, you know, if he's played well, then they've benefited in terms of what's happening on the pitch. You know, it could be argued that that Ben White contributed towards Leeds United getting promoted to the Premier League, and therefore, you know, uh, f- further monies from that. But and, but and that's likely to be something which will be part of the loan deal itself. Um, so, if you lend, if you loan a player and you get promoted, then you probably have to go and pay an increase. Um, but as far as that club that is coaching that player, providing accommodation for that player, playing a contribution, if not all of the player's wages, they will not get uh, any extra money if that player is then goes on to be sold for a substantial amount of uh, money. And, you know, you think about Palace and Conor Gallagher. Yeah, fair point. You know, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's just one of those things. Yeah, our next question, Kieran, comes from John Kellogg. Uh, and John Kellogg has asked us questions before, so you could say he's a serial contributor. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry about that. I've been looking I've been looking forward to that all morning. I, I woke up this morning, and I, uh, the amount of times John must have heard variations on that in his yes. lifetime, I can only apologise. But, but I was always taught as a young comedian, always finish, even in training. So... It had to be done. Uh, but it's a very interesting question, actually, from John. And John says, due to the backlog of questions, uh, another one with the backlog of questions, <laughs> this, should, up a vibe, this yeah. should be relevant post-Qatar World Cup. As you've previously discussed, the cost of hosting a World Cup is expensive for the host nation. But considering that the 2026 World Cup will be jointly hosted by three countries, but the United States will still have the majority of games. Will they get more? Or will, they, will they put more money up than Mexico and Canada, or will the costs be divided equally? No, uh, it will be done on a contribute on, on a contribution basis. The number of matches at the 2026 World Cup is increasing from 64 to 104. The vast majority of those matches will be taking place in. Uh, uh, in the USA, although um, I'm, I'm planning to do Mexico myself. I've, I've watched football in both the US and Canada. I've never watched football in Mexico. So uh, the, the Baroness doesn't doesn't yet realise, but uh, started off at Hartlepool. 
could end up <laughs> at, at 16,000 feet in Guadalajara. Um, who says romance is dead? Um, but uh, the the US um, will have had the agreement with FIFA. And remember, uh, FIFA won't be paying any tax because FIFA is a charity. Um as far as the the nature of the the competition is concerned, and the US will also have the benefits, you know, it, because there, because there's more matches, it will be getting more exposure. The individual uh, clubs or the the cities at which are hosting the games, they'll be getting more people coming to visit them. So so it is a double edged sword. There's more money going out as far as the United States Soccer Federation is concerned, but there'll be more money coming into both the country. Um, and the, the stadiums and, and, and the US Soccer Federation too. Uh, Nick Brace has this question. Nick says, having recently read about the huge amounts of money politicians and political parties can raise through donations, is there any reason why football clubs could not do the same as many of the supporters are as passionate for their clubs as supporters of political parties are? Yeah, I think this is an intriguing one. In fact, we have we have seen this, and you, and you might have even been involved in in this yourself, Kevin. Uh, I know, for example, um, that the Shrimpers Trust uh, at South End. Yeah, we, we've spoken sadly far too often about the the wages being paid late at South End United. Well, they at times have have contributed money towards allowing the the, the payroll bill to be met. Um, I've seen that happen at other clubs, certainly from a supporters' club point of view. There is nothing in theory to stop a donation taking place. And, and in fact, it, it could be argued, of course, that many club owners are fans of the club as well and, and have put in substantial amounts. Um, there would have to be some analysis of this from a financial fair play perspective. Otherwise, what's to stop an individual saying, I'm making a donation of X million pounds towards this club and that counts towards revenue. So I, I think from an FFP perspective, it would be difficult to get through, but there's nothing to stop individual fans from uh, doing this. And again, if we go back to uh, what happened during lockdown and COVID, there were many clubs, uh, supporters, who said, I've already paid for my season ticket for the season 2021. I know I'm not going to see any matches. I know that I'm legally entitled, therefore, to a refund, but I love Tranmere Rovers yeah. or I love Rochdale or I love my club and I'm going to keep my money there effectively as a donation because what's most important to me, well, not most important, but yeah, what's very important to me is that when we come out of lockdown, I've still got a Tranmere Rovers or a Rochdale or a Morecambe or whatever the club's going to be. So it, it does take place. Um, it potentially is open to abuse. And, and I think if that was the case, then you know, either the, the Premier League or the EFL would say, well, actually, we think this is in breach of FFP. Yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned payment of wages there, Kieran. And sadly, I think on our next pod, the news pod, that's going to be uh, one of the top stories at more clubs, isn't mm. it? So um, we won't go into that now because <laughs> it will heavily feature next week. Uh, to the shame of the people concerned, I have to say. Mm, mm. Andrew Ward has our next question. and Andrew says, I'm a big fan of the pod. Thank you, Andrew. And I was at your first live show at Wimbledon, which was a great evening because we met Finley. I, I, just, I just want to point out to people, I'm a performer. I have a performer's ego. I read these things out and I go, it was a great evening. And I laugh. That's really, I'm really pleased because I met a dog. It's just, it's like calling me genial. I want to be cool and edgy. Genial. Um, Andrew says, cost. <laughs> it's amazing the thing that Homer Simpson says, the things that. Anyway. What, was this, what was the name of Homer's chat show? I, I, I can't oh, damn, That's going to really annoy me now. Um, oh, my, my. Um, it's quite a long answer, this, Kieran, so I might Google it while you're uh, answering it. Uh, Andrew says, cost of living is, of course, a big topic these days, and I was curious to see whether it ever gets considered in player contracts, for example, when they move clubs. Hypothetically, a player moves from uh, Carlisle in League Two to Leighton Orient in the same league, not anymore, but, but assuming salary increases would not be huge to move from one club to the other, the player would be net worse off given the cost of difference of living in London versus living in Carlisle. I have to say, originally he, he had Hartlepool, but I thought it would be mm. insensitive to uh, John Appleby, who asked our first question for me to talk about Hartlepool being in League Two. But it's it's an interesting one because we've discussed the notion of London waiting before. 
But yeah, I mean, a player <clears throat> on similar wages going from Carlisle to London would be technically worse off, wouldn't it? They, they would um, from uh, an overall individual financial circumstances point of view. I think from a player's perspective, they're looking to develop their careers at all times. And therefore, um, there have been instances of players refusing to move because their kids are at school, their partner's happy, their partner's got a local job. And in the lower leagues, um, the money... Is it's not as lucrative, you know, but by by definition, it's not going to be as lucrative as, as in the higher divisions and so on. So this is one of the things, um, and certainly when you talk to to managers and chief executives of clubs in lower leagues, they say actually it's it's quite difficult to attract players to our club for geographical and financial reasons, um, especially if they've got family links or historic links to to, to where they are. Um, sometimes a player will say, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'll sign a one year contract and I'll live in digs and I'll effectively rent." Uh, you know, and, that, and they'll come to some sort of compromise with the club. But it, it is certainly a, a consideration. And we did have a question on the show a few weeks ago um, about is there such a thing as a London premium uh, in, as far as wages are concerned? And it's it's not explicit as such because relatively few players who play for London clubs actually live in London itself. You know, they'll be living sort of you know, in, in the suburbs. Um, but uh, it, it's certainly something that, when you are making that decision, because nobody can force you to move from club to club, but if you are making that decision, it's, it's one of those things that you, you would take into consideration because there isn't likely to be a significant change as far as your salary is concerned. So therefore, you've got to look at all of the ancillary issues with regards to what it's going to cost you as an individual. Yes, that's the interesting, Kieran. Um, it wasn't uh, Homer Simpson. It was uh, Peter Griffin I was thinking of with uh, Family wow. Guy. Grinds, that really grinds my gears. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Homer had a chat show. At some point. No, 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 no. Homer used to say grinds my gears on that was yeah. that would be on uh, for the top Tom Tucker. Ah, yeah, probably the sort of conversation we should be having off air here in this one, shouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, our, uh, our penultimate question comes from Eric Eels, and it's an interesting one, this Kieran, because it's kind of counterintuitive to everything we. We believe on the pod in a way, because Eric says, "How much of the Premier League's prosperity is down to the existence of elite, i.e., perpetually successful and thereby internationally recognisable clubs? Would encouraging parity that allowed the emergence of a Leicester City in any season prove financially disadvantageous to the league as a whole, while reducing the exposure of elite clubs, limiting worldwide audiences, and thus television revenues?" It's, it is a different take here because we've been arguing for for three years that you know, football should be structured financially fairly enough for other clubs to be able to compete. But here's Eric suggesting that perhaps it would be a problem if that was to happen. I, I think Eric makes a very valid point in terms of <laughs> the size of the pie. Oh, <laughs> it would, it would see, be a much more valid can... point if it wasn't accompanied by a sound effect. <laughs> this is a very serious question. <laughs> Yes, with the squeaky armadillo uh, in the background. <laughs> you see, Finley heard Andrew Ward saying about how proud he was to have met Finley at the show, and, and now he's putting in a, a sound effects performance in, in the background. He's showing off now. He's got a fan. <laughs> That's right. Um, part of the appeal of the Premier League as an international, as a global product, is that it does have um, brands. It does have clubs which have huge fan bases all over the world. And those clubs winning trophies on a more regular basis means higher viewing figures. Um, so the the big six. No, no, no let, let's, let's, it's not it's not the big six because that that would in, yeah, that would that would involve including Spurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who and, and I'm not I'm not and it's not me I'm not being bitchy about Spurs, but but Spurs haven't won anything yeah. in the Premier League years. And but Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea. Um, I think they they Arsenal yeah they, they've driven and Manchester City in recent years as well they've all driven interest in different geographical areas, um, and therefore those clubs winning trophies means that there's higher viewing figures there's more merchandise sales um, and, and so on and I was at a presentation by somebody senior in the world of broadcasting a month or two ago and he said 
Um, Sky had their lowest viewing figures in the last decade in the year in which Leicester City won the Premier oh, really? League. And people were going, but we're going, but it was romantic. Yeah. He says, "Well, yeah, but romance doesn't sell." Right, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, so. He, he is absolutely right. Now, as far as the financial distribution is concerned, you know, the, the big six clubs, which, which I think is – we will be moving into a big seven very, very uh, shortly, yeah. given given the success that Newcastle have had. And, but they, they've done it without spending stupid money. I've also got to say that. Um, those big clubs <sighs> presently have a financial advantage of around about £300 million over the smaller clubs in the Premier League. Um, and as Gordon Gecko was once said, greed is good. And therefore, having those clubs um, has helped to drive overall interest in the Premier League. And the other clubs, you know, including ours, have benefited from that. Um, I think when it comes to financial distribution, it's it's not a, I don't think anybody's saying that there should be parity in the Premier League because you know, Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester City, these clubs, they, they've done fantastic things. They have been ambassadors for the Premier League in terms of the quality of the play. Um, they, they've helped to develop it as a, as a global sport. Um, so nobody's saying that there should be financial parity. It, it's really a case of where do we want to be on the dial? And when we look at Super League, when we look at Project Big Picture, both of those were attempts by the owners of those clubs to say, we don't think having three times as much money as the other clubs is good enough. It's not greedy enough. And you know, that's, I think that's, that's indicative of a much broader place in socio and economic affairs as to we had moved in the, in the post-war years to having more equal distribution of income between rich and poor. And that has been reversed um, on an individual basis, uh, probably in the last 20 years. And the owners of these clubs say, well, if it's good enough for me as a billionaire, why can't it be big, good enough for my football club as well? Yeah. Our last question, Kieran, comes from Lucas Bolzer. Uh, and again, it's one with, I'm sure, inadvertently, a massive kick in the teeth, ego-wise, hidden away there. As Lucas says, as one of your loyal American fans living in Bestenzee, Germany, I ritually listen to your podcast, The My Bike Ride to Work, as we do not yet have a Price Desk Footballs podcast, which is basically him saying, I love your podcast, but as soon as there's a German one, I'm ditching you and going to that. <laughs> which, I, seriously, everybody. Uh, Lucas, I know you didn't mean to say that, but, you know, that's – I'm, I'm thin-skinned like every performer. But Lucas says, I have a question in regards to the Red Bull football model, and this is a really interesting question. Uh, Lucas says, why hasn't the Red Bull football model been represented in English football yet? Is there a restriction by the EFL, the FA or the Premier League that prohibits corporate-owned football clubs and carrying their name as part of the club name? For example, even though the Bundesliga still upholds the 50 plus 1 rule, clubs such as Bayer Leverkusen still have the majority of shares held by employees of the pharmaceutical company Bayer AG and carry its name in the club name. I think there's a couple of other clubs, Kieran, that benefited from a, a, a loophole that said... Uh, clubs that have historically had a, a name mm. in there, like I think pre nineteen fifty, were allowed to keep it. But it's it's an interesting question. Why hasn't somebody looked at the Red Bull model here? Presumably Red Bull. Yes. Um, well, we did have Total Network Solutions. Oh, that's true in Wales. In, in yes, the Welsh, of course. Uh, which is now known as TNS. Yeah. Um, so, what what better thing to do at seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday? Then go into the FA handbook <laughs> to look at the look at the small print in relation to club names, um, and in theory there is nothing to stop a club from changing its name, but it would have to be given the approval of the regulatory body. So the chances are that it would be voted down, unless there's a number of uh, football club owners thinking, well, actually. Uh, yeah, Manchester Nike is worth an awful lot of yeah. money, um, and and therefore perhaps we could do that. Now, there's also a case for saying, well, hold on, Manchester United as a brand is worth a fortune. So, part part of the reason for it is that the existing club names themselves have value, and they prob that value probably exceeds w what you could get from a a sponsor or a a, a a change of name. But there, there is nothing to stop it 
provided the authorities agree to it. Um, and it could be the, the, the sanctioning bodies. You know, the FA say, we don't make the decision ourselves, but it would therefore be left to the National League or the SPFL or the Premier League or or the EFL to make a decision. So you know, when clubs are looking at all and every ways of increasing uh, their, their revenue streams, this would be a consideration. But I think they'd also have to accept there could be a pretty significant backlash. You know, if if Crystal Palace were, you know, if Steve Parrish says, actually, um, next from next season onwards, we're going to be loan as, you know, such and such uh, insurance FC, you'd be up in arms, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, because the history, the heritage, yeah. every your identity is with Crystal Palace Football Club and not with some corporate. So I think clubs will, will be aware of this, but they also know that the downside is likely to be negative. Having said that, there's nothing to stop. If you're, you know, let's say, let's say, Kevin, we start off with a, with a let's make it a fictional football mm-hmm. club, um, the Porson's Arms uh-huh. FC. And it, it starts up and it starts to make progress and it goes through the leagues. Well, there's nothing to stop that club from participating in the EFL or the Premier League and it would have the name of of the establishment. Mm. I just I, I can't think of the words to indicate how unlikely that scenario would be. <laughs> that, that particular pub and that particular clientele would never organise itself well enough. You can't even work out which TV channel. Never mind. It's, I love that pub so much. Do you think, Kieran, that the Baroness has the occasional sliding doors moment when she thinks, if I'd turned down that trip to Hartlepool, I wouldn't be lying in bed watching a bloke in a dead Kennedy's T-shirt flicking through the FA handbook at 7 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then she, she, she looks at your lovely face and then Finley comes in with his squeaky toy and she goes, I did make the right decision after all. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Sorry for the coughing in the background. That's the chest infection and also my ego complaining, I guess. Uh, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, then go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you, everybody, for your support for the show from from Patreon and other ways. Um, there's... if. But we, there's clearly there's a little bit of snarkiness amongst the uh, uh, amongst listeners for, yeah. in terms of the time it takes yeah. to uh, have their questions answered. So I'm going to give you an alternative. Ooh. Ooh. On the 11th of May, Kevin and I are uh, are giving we're doing a charity gig for the Memphis ch- uh, Club in Leicester. Uh, it does fantastic work for uh, children with disabilities. And uh, we're going to go to to raise some money for that. And we're going to do sort of the usual show. We'll be coming up talking about, um, you know, some football finance issues. Given that we're in Leicester, I suspect one of the the issues might be the impact of relegation from the Premier League. I believe some fans are coming from Derby. So we can also be talking about the, you know, the, the impact of promotion and some of Derby's issues. But we will be, as part of that show, we will be having a QA and a session. So if you buy a ticket, is a chance to get your questions answered before the end of the century, which which will be fantastic. And uh, we'd also like to give our congratulations to Plymouth Argyle uh, and all the other clubs that have just been promoted. Mm-hmm. But we are appearing at Home Park uh, doing a Price of Football gig live on the 6th of June. Apologies, it has to be rescheduled, mainly due to fixture clashes and one or two other issues. Um, but we've, we we said we'd always do the show and we're looking forward to it. Um, and also um, to, to all of those people that are asking us to, to do shows. So we've been asked to do a show um, in, in Dublin. We've been asked to do a show in Philadelphia and we've been asked to do a show in the Channel Islands. And we'll do our damnedest to get there as well. Uh, we will. Uh, are we are we not breaking some kind of football finance pod FFP regulations by suggesting people can pay money to get a question answered? Because now you've set up a dilemma for a lot of people. They go, I really want to know the answer to this question, but it's going to cost me 200 quid on a train to get to Plymouth and 20 quid for a ticket to get it answered. I think I might wait for a year. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure we've done it. Yeah. 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 Perhaps we could just cut out the middleman and just say, bung us a fiver with each question, and you'll definitely get it answered. That's, that's the way to become an MP, isn't it? <laughs>
Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. I'm for the